We're going to read together the whole of chapter 1 and draw a few things out from there. So let's get cracking. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia... Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned... I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Quite an impressive wonderful, majestic um, passage of Scripture uh, from a book in the Bible which has uh, any number of weird and wonderful visions of, of kind of heavenly realms um, where things seem to be in, in symbols and it's not always immediately apparent to us uh, just at first glance um, what's going on. But this is a book that was given to bless 
God's people. And so it says right at the beginning, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. So it wasn't written to be all kind of mysterious and kind of hide meaning away where only very clever and academic Christians with lots of time on their hands could possibly dare uh, to get anything from it. This is a book that's for all of us to do us good. And it's always helpful uh, when reading a passage in the Bible, indeed any passage, and this passage in particular, to think, okay, here, what is, what's the big idea? Indeed, throughout the whole of this, the book of Revelation, I'm not sure whether we'd get to look at all of it. We were just in chapter 1 today. But if you go on to read all of this book, to bear in mind, what's the big idea? Because otherwise we can get caught up in kind of uh, small details and kind of get the wrong end of the stick. The big idea. Here we go. God wins. There we go. We have it there. You might want to just underline it. God wins. And if there's a response to that from us, God wins and we worship. There we have it. Um, Slightly simplified version of the whole book. The big idea then, God wins, even when appearances seem to the contrary. Jesus is the king. He's the Lord of history. He rules over everything. Everything in the past, everything in the present, everything in the future, he is the king, and he is wonderfully in control. At Christmas, my uh, three-year-old daughter was given a book. Now, some of you may be very aware, very familiar of this book. For others, maybe not, and so I'll give you a quick run-through. The Gruffalo. Has anybody heard of The Gruffalo? Wonderful. Okay. (laughs) Uh, More than just three-year-olds. That's wonderful. Um, If you're not familiar with The Gruffalo... I won't give the whole story away, but I'll just give you the the general gist. There's a little mouse, and the little mouse is walking through a dark wood. And in the dark wood, the little mouse meets a number of very threatening predators. So the first is a fox, and then, um, which one's next? Is it the, the owl? Thank you. And after that? The snake. Oh, you are so good. This is brilliant. (laughs) Um, Meets these three animals, and each animal says, why don't you come to tea with me? Which, in other words, is another way of saying, uh, I want to eat you up, little mouse. And uh, then there's a fourth animal, and the fourth animal is the gruffalo. And the gruffalo is a hideous, foul monster. And on one level, uh, the story is about how this very small, but kind of Uh, witty uh, mouse manages to evade the grasp of each of those four very threatening animals or beasts. Um, In one sense, that's what's going on. In another sense, you think, well, who's really in control of the story? Who's really in control of the story? The mouse, okay, the mouse is uh, is vulnerable, he's quite quite witty, he's quite sharp-witted, and so he manages to evade it. But the mouse can't control the reactions of these other animals and beasts entirely. Who's in control of the story? It's the narrator. It's the person who wrote the story. It's the author of the story. And in the same way, Jesus is in control of his story, the whole of history. There could be any number of threatening beasts for this 
a small mouse, as it were, to, to negotiate. Who's really in control, though? It's the narrator. And for us, in life, in the church, in all of history, there'll be times when there's some significant uh, threats, challenges, even beasts, as you go on to look and read through the book of Revelation, some foul and hideous beasts threatening God's people, this small community that can feel quite vulnerable at times, like a mouse in a dark wood. But who's really in control? Jesus is in control. He's in control of the past and the present and the future. So why do we need to know this big idea? Well, uh, John is writing to a number of churches who are facing very real challenges. There are challenges coming their way. There are, uh, there are pressures from the outside, like persecution. Um, at this time, uh, towards the end of the very first century, there's uh, Emperor Domitian um, is the emperor in Rome. And under his authority, the, the Christian church is encountering more persecution. Initially, uh, persecution would come from, from Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and so they want to try and stamp it out. Um, now, also, there's persecution from Rome, this emperor in particular. Um, and so Roman officials, Roman authorities, would be trying to force Christians to no longer bow down to Jesus, but to bow down to the emperor and to bow down to Rome. And as a result, some were losing their life. Persecution, pressure from the outside. There's also uh, pressure from, the, from within, pressure uh, inside the church, um, like false teaching and like compromise. You know, we're hearing from that, that word earlier on about you know, this, this kind of sunset moment. You, you come to the Lord Jesus, and you know, we could look at that and think that's the, the pinnacle of our experience with God, the most glorious moment when we got saved. And of course, it is glorious. You kind of wonder, what was it like for the church then? When now, um, about AD 95, many of the, the first-hand witnesses of Jesus' life, death, death, and resurrection have themselves passed on. Persecution means that, for, the, for now at least, John, um, who's got some kind of measure of, of, uh, of leadership and authority amongst them, he's sidelined, he's off in, on the Isle of Patmos um, because of persecution, because of the testimony of Jesus. How does this church feel? Was that the glory day back then, when everything was still kind of fresh in the memory, and what about now, when this emperor is rising up? There, there are people who could just feel not quite as enthusiastic as they once were, whose, um, whose further uh, enthusiasm is perhaps on the wane. False teaching, other ideas about Jesus can come in and just dilute the whole thing, dilute the whole community. So pressures from the outside, pressures from within and as well. That was the case for them then. What about us? Persecution. Well, there are some people, possibly in this room, but certainly around this world, who are very aware of what it costs to follow Jesus. Living in nations where the, the state government authority, the leaders of that nation, are set against people believing in the Lord Jesus. Pressure 
coming upon God's people. That's very real for many in the world today. It may not feel very close to home for us. Um, But at the same time, there'll be people in this room as well, and perhaps you're one of them. You're very aware of what it means to be a Christian when perhaps friends, family, colleagues are set against it, don't understand it, don't understand you, think you're foolish, are quite free to tell you that. And you can think, oh, it's just, just pressure. What does, that, what does that do? What can that feel like? Well, Revelation is here to help us. We're not being forced to bow down to an emperor in Rome. And yet for us, we can be tempted, perhaps more subtly, the culture around us wants to draw us into worshipping and bowing down to other idols. Think, Jesus, no, don't, don't bow down to him. That's ridiculous. Um, give your time. Give your money. Give your attention to something else. And that could be anything. That can be a relationship. That can be uh, sex. That can be uh, money. Looking to bow down to something else and put ourselves in such a position as to always seek to be in the benefit of our idol or idols. Our culture is seeking to draw our worship away from Jesus onto something else. Now, we may also not be uh, mourning the loss of the apostles, many of whom have died by now, or mourning the loss of first-hand witnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. But for us, we can be unsettled when things change. We can be unsettled by friends moving on, change in circumstance, things in the life of the church maybe seeming in flux in one way or another, or things in our life, in, in work, um, knowing that we're going to have a job in the future, things to do with the future, a sense of just being unsettled. And that can be another factor that just seeks to dampen Dampen enthusiasm about Jesus. There was this, this rosy moment. There was this sunset moment. But now, well, things, are a bit, things can sometimes seem tough and bleak. Well, Revelation was written to a, a group of churches with those kind of experiences. And it's written to us today because we face real challenges. And when, when we face real challenges, it's time to see Jesus again. It's time to see Jesus, that he is... The king, he's the lord of all. He's the lord of history. And this book is a revelation of him. Jesus revealing what we need to know about him. So there's great blessing in here for us. It's about Jesus and he's the best. Now there's loads in this chapter that we could look at. We're going to pull out a few things about Jesus. We're going to look at some things about Jesus in the past, what Jesus has achieved in the past, and then what Jesus is doing now, and then what Jesus will do in the future. And there are a few verses that point to what Jesus has already achieved, what he has already become. So verse 5, for instance, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, goes on to say, to him who loves us and has freed us, from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Jesus came to earth as the faithful witness. 
Jesus is everything that God wanted to say about himself. And so Jesus came, the revelation of God. He's God's word to the world. All that God wants to say about himself to us is in Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, we're told in Colossians 1 and verse 15. We're told in Hebrews as well, Hebrews 1 and verse 3, um, that he is the exact representation of God. God wanted to fully represent himself to the world, and so he sent his son in the flesh to walk amongst us. A faithful witness who is utterly reliable and trustworthy. This week, if you've been watching the news, you'll know that there's a cruise ship uh, that capsized. It safely left port. It was heading to its destination, and there were some rocks. And, well, if you've seen it in the news, you'll know the ship capsized on the rocks. It got too close. Uh, With Jesus at the helm, there is no ultimate danger. He's safely brought a ship out of the harbor on a journey, and it's heading to a destination. He's faithful. He won't abandon ship. And whilst in God's kingdom we can look out the window and maybe see rocks that are close by, persecution, challenges, threats that are coming in the direction of the church, these don't threaten the boat because Jesus is at the helm. He's expertly guiding things uh, by his power. He's also, as well as the faithful witness, he's the firstborn from the dead. A forerunner, if you like. The idea here is someone who opens up a way, opens up a path that others follow. When we were looking um, at the Gospel of Luke, towards the end of Luke, looking at the events of the Easter weekend, we were seeing what happened over the course of that weekend, his trial being firstly kind of abandoned by his disciples, betrayed by Judas, then tried, beaten, cruelly treated, and crucified on a cross. Any number of of moments, any number of factors where um, defeat uh, looked apparent. But what looked like defeat was in fact proved to be the most glorious and everlasting victory. Jesus was dead, uh, but he was raised to life. And so he became the ruler of the kings of the earth, ruling over enemies that he has defeated. He might have appeared like zero, But heaven's perspective, and our perspective now, is he is the ultimate hero. Yet looked like defeat, but he was raised, the firstborn from the dead, now the ruler of the kings of the earth. I believe John's writing that to encourage people who are themselves going through dark times, maybe looking out of the window and seeing rocks that seem quite close to the boat. What's going on here? I hadn't reckoned on this. This is looking like a threat. This is a difficulty. This is a challenge. We've not faced this before. This is unpleasant. What's going on? Is God still at the helm? Is God still in charge of all of this? Has he jumped ship? Or is he still with us? Is it guaranteed that this boat is going to head to the harbor it's supposed to get to? Questions can rise in the mind of the saints. And as John is saying, he's the faithful witness He's the firstborn from the dead. 
in his life, it looked like there was apparently a defeat. But we know it was absolutely a glorious victory. And the same, therefore, stands for us in our witness on this earth. There can be times, just feel like a little mouse wandering through the woods. A little mouse with a little voice, very threatened. But who's in charge? Well, God's in charge. Who's telling the story? God's telling the story. Who's at the helm of the ship? God's at the helm of the ship. Where is this going to head to? Exactly where it's supposed to, because God's in charge. In verse 18, we hear from the, from the mouth of Jesus, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. There were times in Jesus' ministry on earth when it looked like other authorities were in charge. Who's in charge? Jesus is in charge. He's the king. He's ruling over enemies. He's defeated. He's ruling over the whole of creation. He holds the keys of death and Hades. He died. But by dying, Jesus defeated death. And now he has the keys to death itself. So if we have to faith persecution, martyrdom even, though we may look defeated in the eyes of the world, we know that actually we'll follow the path that Jesus has opened up we will be resurrected to be with God forever. We will be involved in ruling in his kingdom. What I think is utterly remarkable through this chapter also is the example of John. How is he responding to the, to the challenges, to the threats, to the troubles and difficulties that are coming his way? Because he's suffering on account of his faith. He's separated from those he knows and loves. He's, um, it's understood that he's on a, uh, in a penal colony, colony uh, imprisoned on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. So, not in the best of places, you would think. But then look at what's going on. We find out in verse 10, on the Lord's day... I was in the spirit, he says. It's like there's no hint of this guy licking his wounds. It's even like he's not allowed himself to be wounded. Who knows how he's been treated physically? Who knows the conditions that he's living in? But regardless of all of that, on the inside, there's a vibrant faith that didn't get dented. I find that incredibly challenging because I, I find it incredibly easy to develop a taste for licking my wounds. John's response is a massive provocation to me. You know, on a good day with a following wind, with no great hardships, no particular stresses, we can think, we can kind of manage to say, yes, today I was in the spirit. I was praying and just like encountering heaven, knowing God speak to me and just blissful experience of enjoying his presence. But like I say, maybe on a good day we can kind of think, well, that's, that's what happens then. It doesn't really happen at other times. John is saying, look, in verse 9, I'm your brother, I'm your companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. We're involved 
in those three things. Suffering, a kingdom, and patient endurance. It's almost like, well, we're part of God's kingdom, yes. But sometimes there's suffering. We're part of God's kingdom, fantastic. But they're things that we have to patiently wait for, patiently endure for. What's John doing in that time? John, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And we also have the Spirit amongst us. So many encouragements this morning just to stir the expectation again for all of us that God wants to live amongst us by His Spirit. He does indeed live amongst us by His Spirit. And therefore, we can have a fresh knowledge of His presence with us where He's giving uh, gifts and an awareness that he's active amongst us. As I was thinking about that, when I was, when I was six, um, growing up in a Christian home, I found out uh, that there was a place called heaven. And um, so I kind of asked the question, well, if we get to go to heaven, if we're saved, why bother with life on earth? Why don't we just go there straight away? Um, which is a kind of a slightly bleak thing, if you think about it in a sense. Why don't we just die now? Effectively, I was saying as a six-year-old. If it's great there, what's the point here? I was a happy lad, wasn't I? Um, and sometimes we can, maybe others might identify that. I don't, I don't know. Why bother with life on earth if we get to go to heaven? And basically, as a six-year-old, what that revealed about the way that I thought was this. I had... No expectation that heaven touches earth here and now today. I had no expectation of that. We're just having to patiently endure and wait around until the good stuff happens. Well, John's example is, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God. But on the Lord's day, on the day that we remember that Jesus rose again from the dead, I was in the spirit enjoying relationship with the king of all history. Is that our expectation? Is that our eager expectation on the Lord's day? On a Sunday? On any other day, for that matter? Is it just when things are rosy, we might just muster up something where we, where we kind of feel, yeah, well, I can expect for, for that now because it's just a wonderful time of peace. And I'm just so happy. I want to sway during worship. Um, is it, is it that, or is our expectation that even in profoundly nitty-gritty challenges of personal life, church life, national life, global life, we are the privileged people of God who get to meet with him in the present. So let's go on. Jesus, a revelation of Jesus, not only what he has done in the past, being resurrected from the grave, but also what Jesus is doing in the present. On the Lord's day... Um, John was in the spirit and then it says I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet so he he turns then to see where is this voice coming from who is it that's speaking to me and he has what seems like the most bizarre vision of Jesus of our saviour he says he describes this one who looks like a son of man And that's not just a random phrase. John isn't being kind of random when he's trying to describe the the visions that he sees in the book of Revelation. Often, he's turning back, as it were, to a well-known vision from the Old Testament. 
And in this case, uh, in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has uh, another book with many weird, wonderful, and bizarre visions. He has a, a vision in Daniel chapter 7. And he sees any number of kind of foul beasts rising up, uh, as it were, to oppose God. And then as he looked in verse 9, Daniel 7 verse 9, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And he describes the Ancient of Days, uh, a kind of peculiar phrase, if you like, for Almighty God. There are all these beasts, but then God takes the throne. And then one later on in verse 13, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Does that sound familiar? Who do you think that's about? Jesus our wonderful saviour. And so John, receiving this vision of Jesus, he kind of borrows Daniel's language. He borrows the descriptions. That's what I saw too. So here's how I'm going to describe it. Like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. We read the description all the way through. If you try and draw a picture of that, that's going to look strange. That's going to look odd. But the impression that it gives overall is of just purity, absolute radiance and glory, awesome power, and in a sense, this vision is is kind of got like a dangerous edge to it. We find that his eyes are like blazing fire. It's almost like it's trying to say God sees right into the human heart. Jesus' eyes, blazing fire, and he, wants to, he sees into our heart. He sees every situation that's going on in life. He sees right into you and me. He sees the sin that sometimes lives there, and he wants to burn it out. His eyes, blazing fire. His feet, like bronze, glowing in a furnace. Feet that have a fiery glow. Bronze, a metal that is, here is glowing, is known to be uh, you know, harder than gold and silver and often used in, in weaponry. And that's the kind of connotation here. Our Savior, Lord Jesus, he's kind of bringing judgment. He's kind of bringing a verdict. This is good. No, that isn't. It reminds me of a conversation that takes place in the lion, the wit- Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, yeah, got that right, Um, by C.S. Lewis. And there's a a scene where uh, the four children are speaking to the beaver, of course, um, and anticipating meeting Aslan, the great lion, who represents Jesus, if you know the story. And they're anticipating meeting this great lion called Aslan. And so they ask the beaver, is he safe? Because he sounds a bit, sounds a bit kind of, Dangerous. I'm not quite sure I'd like to meet him. And the beaver says, well, is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he is good. And there's kind of that thrust here. The best place to be 
is in the presence of God. What better place is there? How wonderfully good, pure, perfect, awesome, loving to him who has to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What a good saviour. Is he a safe saviour? Is he always entirely comfortable to be with? No. He's not safe, but he is good. You know, sometimes, perhaps with, with Christmas, perhaps fresh in our memory, um, we're going to be aware of some of the traditions, some of the ideas, some of the images that Christmas gives us. And, or maybe some of the Christmas carols and, uh, and how they can present Jesus sometimes um, as meek and mild, little baby. He's in the manger, don't you know? A friend of sinners. Of course he is that. Of course, wonderfully approachable, accessible God who's near, who's with us always, who's always attentive to every situation that's going on in our lives and every word that comes from our mouth. He knows it completely. But meek and mild, I don't really think so. We have an awesome description of our Savior here now, a heavenly perspective of Jesus. You know, we looked, we looked in Luke, and we looked at the events of the Easter weekend. We looked and we saw what happens to Jesus. I mean, he's awesome and majestic then for the way in which he handles the challenges that come his way, but he was vulnerable in a human body, subject to intense pressure. And now we're listening to John. John, the disciple that Jesus loved, John knew Jesus. John and Jesus, kind of best mates, really. John, who knew him when he slept on the boat because he was tired after a long day ministering. John, who knew Jesus when Jesus was hungry, when he needed something to eat. John, who knew Jesus when he was being tried, when he was being beaten, when he was hanging from a cross. John was there to see that. When Jesus says, John, here is your mother. In other words, please look after Mary. John was there. John, John saw all of that. John reclined against Jesus um, at the Last Supper. Friends together, kind of just right alongside each other, talking about what's going on. An awesome friendship. But here, John, is he's not just got an earthly perspective on Jesus. He's got a heavenly perspective also. Jesus, who, well, yes, he, he is my friend. I'm friends with God. But my friend happens to be the, this one like a son of man whose face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. He's not safe, but he is good. So not the object of our pity or sympathy, but the one before whom we're utterly amazed and in awe. Yeah, Jesus, our high priest, this kind of figure who in a sense is stood there um, like the ultimate priest or the ultimate king or even like the ultimate uh, warrior 
standing amongst the lampstands, as it were, which we find out later are the churches. He's amongst his church with eyes of fire and a sword coming from his mouth. And so again, being in the presence of God is a good place to be. How disastrous it would be if a lampstand wasn't in the presence of God. If there's a church, but by name only, Jesus wasn't with them. And their light had been taken away. How disastrous that would be. No, we want to be in the presence of Jesus. We desire, we love, we enjoy. Um, We are satisfied with his wonderful presence amongst us. There's nowhere better to be, but it's not safe. And it's not meant to be. And so John's response. Again, we can, we can learn so much from seeing how John responds. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Quite an awesome encounter then that he has with Jesus. And if, sometimes we can look at that kind of scenario and we can, we can put a tone onto Jesus' words that aren't there. Do not be afraid. It's like, Jesus, oh, don't, be, don't be afraid. Get up, get up. It's just me. Look, I'm, it's, it's your friend. Remember, you know, we used to go out for meals together, you know, punch him on the shoulder or something. Um, you know, if, if you're downstairs later on, or indeed upstairs, and um, you know, someone, you, you go up to a friend, you know, if you might shake them by the hand or just kind of tap them on the shoulder, they're kind of a socially appropriate way, according to your relationship, to say hello and how are you. If that person then just goes, I'm so glad you're here, I'm so glad you made it, um, or we'd just be embarrassed. What are you doing? Get up. We're mates. Come on. That's just bizarre. Uh, if you're not embarrassed by that, you've got a bigger problem. <laughs> um, but that sense of, yes, I am friends with Jesus. Uh, all right, mate, yeah. Um, but this is not casual. Uh, this is not kind of, um, this is not flippant. Jesus is saying, yeah, don't be afraid. You know, I am good. <laughs> don't be afraid. But John doesn't get rebuked for falling to the ground as though dead. In a sense, it's an entirely appropriate response. But Jesus speaks and lays a hand on him. And then in effect kind of commissions him, I've got a job for you, and I'm with you, and I am God. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever. What are you bowing down to? What are we bowing down to? John bowing down to Jesus. Some in the churches, yeah, bowing down to Jesus, but actually being pressured to bow down to something else, to bow down to an emperor. What are you pressured to bow down to? Are we allowing our allegiance to get diluted? I pledge my allegiance to you. To who? To Jesus? Sometimes our time and money can show what we are devoting ourselves to most of all. Which is not that we shouldn't spend money on things like food or whatever, or we shouldn't spend time uh, sleeping. Um, but what's the thrust? Because what was happening in the church, that, uh, the churches that John was writing to, they were just getting pressured 
just to dial things down. Don't take things so seriously. Worship Rome instead. Don't don't waste your time with, with that. Come on. And we can be under the same pressure, drawn into worshipping other things. What are we bowing down to? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it success? I must achieve, I must be able to show with my life to anyone that looks that I'm absolutely, intellectually, economically, socially, and in every way, a complete success story. Look at, look at my efforts. Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've done. It can just be anything that just takes our attention away from him. It can be anything. It can be, it can be sports. It can be hobbies. It can be pursuits. These things aren't necessarily bad, but they can detract. They can take away. They can draw us away. It might be more subtle for us than it was for believers who were first reading the book of Revelation. Well, let's ensure today that we've got a clear picture of who Jesus is. Not just an earthly impression of a man walking around who got tired, who slept, who ate, who had some friends, and who died on a cross. But heavenly Jesus, as he is right now in his church, amongst us, this awesome and majestic figure. Jesus, king of the past, king of the present, and king of the future. Lastly, looking at verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. This kind of emphatic declaration of something that is happening, something that will happen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. We were even singing that earlier on. This, this king who is going to return. And again, that quote there in verse 7 is kind of a combination of a couple of verses that we, we can see elsewhere. We won't look there in particular, but for the benefit of your notes, if you want to, Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah 12 and verse 10. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And this verse describes the point that the whole of history is moving forward to. If you like, the true and eternal sunset moment that history is progressing to, a moment when every eye will see him. I mean, can you imagine that? Do you imagine that? Do, do we think about the fact that Jesus didn't just die in the past, was raised to life again in the past, rose to heaven in the past, is now seated in heavenly glory in the present? Do we then kind of think about the fact that Jesus is coming back? Again, this book here, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Have we taken to heart that Jesus is the Lord of history who is going to come again, who's going to wrap up the whole of history when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he wants them to be encouraged by this. He says from verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, 
We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Let's encourage each other with truth. Encourage each other with truth of what Jesus has done, what he is doing right now, and what he will do in the future. He's going to come again It is possible that for those who first received uh, this book from John, they were unsettled. Unsettled by the uncertainties of life. Unsettled by the fact that, um, as it were, the church was in a phase of transition, to use a, a kind of current term, if you like. Things were moving. Things were in flux a bit. There weren't so many apostles now who first walked and talked with Jesus. Things have just moved on. John's around, but actually John himself has been taken off to the island of Patmos. And he is an old man. He is old at this point in time. So you could kind of imagine the church is just kind of, again, just feeling like that little mouse. Or uh, feeling like the boat is just sailing a little bit too close to the rocks. Is this, is this really going to go where it's supposed to? Is this going to go where it's headed. We feel uncertain, unsettled. We can get unsettled. Is there going to be a double dip recession? What's going to happen to my job? Unexpected changes in life or in the church? Are health less than ideal? Or persecution even that we were thinking about, talking about earlier? We need to remind ourselves of what we know to be true. What God has done in Christ what Jesus is doing right now, standing among his churches, tending to his church. And remind ourselves as well what we know to be true and that which will be in the future. Jesus will come again. For many, this is good news. For others, at the moment, it certainly isn't or it isn't yet. Because when Jesus comes again, it won't be to see who wants to go with him At that point, whatever decisions people are living with, at that moment, those decisions will be final. Those decisions can't be changed at the moment Jesus appears in the clouds of glory when every eye will see him. What a wonderful moment. But what a serious moment as well. A moment we don't actually know when that will be. Again, who are you bowing down to? Are you bowing down to the Savior of the world? You can meet him today and encounter some of what we've been reading about. Again, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And we've been singing about that. What it means to be freed from sin and know the powerful, potent love of God. Well, do you know it? If you do know it, is that what's causing you to bow the knee and pledge your allegiance to him? Jesus has won a great victory in the past. He reigns supreme in the present, and he will come again to complete the story. God is with us. God is in charge. Whenever things appear to the contrary, whenever we can feel vulnerable or uncertain of how things are really working out, who's in charge? Well, God is telling his story. He's a narrator, and he's not even threatened by any beast who might rise up within the story. He's in control of everything. So as we said right at the beginning, 
God wins. God wins. That's the message. That's the verdict. That's the story. That's the book of Revelation. God wins. What about us? Let's worship and let's pray.